Hi guys and welcome back to Let's Chat Ethics. I'm your co-host Ariana. And I'm your other co-host Amanda. And we're back. We're back. Woohoo! It's been a minute. Yeah, it's been a what? I think it's been a year and a half we were saying since we last recorded. Oh my god. I know it's crazy. Time flies. Time, time flies when you're getting fun. old. Oh, okay. yeah. getting old. <laughs> or, or having fun, yeah, that too. <laughs> All those things. To be fair, I think we were just saying today that the time um, since the pandemic feels like it's just gone insanely fast and we've got loads yeah. of life updates. I know, I was reading, somebody was writing, oh, I can't believe it's been three years since uh, we were, since the Tiger King. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, it has been three years. What did I do in the last three years? I don't know. I know, it's been, oh my gosh, yeah, three years since we were baking banana bread and going yeah. for those runs and posting it on Instagram. <laughs> yeah, fighting over toilet paper and pasta. <laughs> oh my God, what 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 a time we have lived through. It's been, it's been crazy. It's yeah, absolutely it's crazy. It's surreal now. <laughs> yeah, it does feel surreal. It actually does feel surreal. It feels like it was some kind of movie yeah. that we lived through. <laughs> yeah, well... But anyway, we're back now. I know we're back and, and excited. I think yeah. I've, I've missed I've missed doing the podcast. This this was honestly one of the highlights for me of the pandemic. This got me through the very dark lockdowns, getting to record with Amanda every week and yeah. having exciting guests on. It really got me through um a hard time. Same back in <laughs> when I was in Edinburgh, it was rough. <laughs> oh my god, I know. And now look at us, I feel like we've both, um, we've got new jobs. Yeah, new of course, cities. that's, uh, you know, we had our, our break because we moved, we got jobs, real jobs. <laughs> <laughs> we moved up in the world and I feel like, um, what was it, something that one of our guests who's going to be coming on said that I really liked was it's good to emphasise having breaks as it's you know kind of toxic to have that mentality to keep going and it's good to recognize when you can step away from something and have a have a break work on yourself look after yourself and exactly you got to look after yourself so you can be your your best uh, when you're doing your work in the world it's true this is our work yeah it's true not just churn out um content or anything so yes emphasis to anyone who feels like they need a break from something take that break Exactly. And so now we're back. Today we have Dirk Hovey, who is a professor in computer science now, right? That we've changed. Great start, Amanda. <laughs> love that, love that. Uh-huh. I mean, I guess we want to be computer science. I'm fine, fine. Let me just, uh, I'm getting flashbacks to Toju's recording. Okay, sorry. Um, so... Um, today we have Dirk Hovey, who's a professor in computer science at Bocconi University and also my boss. And we're going to talk about everybody's favorite um, NLP technology, um, ChatGPT, or more broadly, large language models. So big welcome to Dirk. <laughs> Thanks for having me. And so, Dirk, I guess first we're going to ask you what are large language models <laughs> ah okay I'm, I'm glad you asked so large language models are um, just blowing up an idea that has been around for quite a long time uh, in language technology so 
language models at its simplest are a box and you can stick in any sentence and it will tell you how likely are you to find this sentence in the wild. And that is useful for a lot of applications. So for example, in machine translation, a tool might produce several, let's say five or 10 different translations of a, an Italian sentence. Uh, and it will produce five different versions in English. And then you could stick all of them into a language model, say, which of them is the most likely, which of them is the most fluent if you want to. And it would basically just give you a number and the highest number wins, right? So that's what language models were originally used for. So the way the, the inner workings of that box uh, are set up is that the model um, learns to guess basically or assess how likely a sequence of words is, which is a sentence. Um, but because it can do that, you can also then run it in reverse, so to speak, and ask it to produce language. Um, and this is fairly simple. Uh, you can sit down and write a very, very simple language model in a few lines of code, uh, if you know how to code, and then uh, have it produce you know, a new text by Shakespeare or something that sounds a little bit like Shakespeare if you've trained it on the works of Shakespeare. And what has changed now is that these language models, large language models, are just a lot better. They're more precise, um, and they have been um, they have been trained to essentially play a a guessing game. Um, so fill in the blank. Essentially, you know, when you play Hangman or, or Wordle, that's kind of the game that these language models have been trained on. You're giving uh, they, they are given a sentence and then you just hide one of the words, you blank it out and you say, hey, language model, what is the best word to fill this? And if you play that again and again and they play it on the entire internet, uh, the entire written internet, then these models get pretty good and they can essentially fill in the blanks for any kind of text, uh, but they can also then continue uh, adding another word and another word and another word and another word. And that is exactly why, you know, chat GPT or GPT-3, these models that are out there in the, in the public domain can generate text, right? They, they take your input and then they generate the most likely next word and the next word after that and the next word after that, because they are essentially, you know, playing that game that they've been trained to play. Uh, but to us as human readers, that looks like they're answering to a question or, you know, they're translating something or they're giving a label to a text or, you know, doing all kinds of other exciting things that these models do. Oh, thank you. No, thank you. For that. That's a really great explanation. I know you briefly mentioned um, some kind of applications because some questions I've been asked by uh people who don't work necessarily in this space or tech is um well one what was nlp to begin with <laughs> um and two what kind of applications um has it been used in and how did kind of chat gbt get to where it is now um and blowing up i guess in the public sphere because it's in every headline now and every newspaper yeah. <laughs> so and yeah. everyone who even doesn't really work in the space knows about it but ne might not necessarily understand um the applications for it. So language models, like I said, are, are a really old idea. They have been around for decades, um, but the, the cheap version of it, so to speak. 
even the large language models have been around for mm, about five years at this point. Um, they, they have been made possible by two things. One is that we now have just a boatload of data available and we can play this guessing game on, on this data, which is the entire internet. Um, the other thing is that there is now um, an algorithm, a, a model architecture, it's called the transformers, uh, that are really good at playing this game. And because these models are now around, uh, these language models have just made a huge jump around five years ago, around 2017, 18. Um, and so they've been around in the natural language processing, the, the computational linguistics community for a while. People have used them. And, and what we have seen is that they just uh, make, in broad strokes, they make every application better. Uh, and the reason is that before, when you wanted to have a tool that, you know, comes up with keywords for your text or searches a website for all the people and places in it or uh, does a translation, not only did you have to teach it to do these things, but you also had to teach it how to understand language. So, so really before we had to train models to do one specific thing and then how to understand language. And these models now essentially know, that's a, that's a big word, but know in quotes, mm -hmm. uh, how language works. And so you only, again, in square quotes, uh, have to teach them how to do the thing you're interested in. And so the applications for this are, well, essentially everything that has to do with language, right? So this could be question answering, this could be machine translation, this could be uh, information extraction from websites, this could be opinion mining, this could be text classification, um, this could be captioning for images. Um, so really think about any task that involves language in any way, shape or form. And these models will probably be applicable and, and probably make existing applications better if they're used. So to some extent, they're kind of magic dust that you can now sprinkle on any language technology uh, to make them better with a lot of caveats, but yeah. Well, so I think uh, with, probably because we're in academia, uh, a big issue has been with how they can impact education. I know there's been, uh, you were talking about somebody who <laughs> doesn't want to read things written by machines or how um, it's going to impact. I think probably anybody who's listening to this can relate to having to write an essay and stuff. If you can just ask um, um, a system to, write an essay for you and I mean if anyone has seen uh, the outputs that this produces it's very pretty convincing and like yeah <laughs> really good I think uh, we played around with it even had it write uh, things like papers and it it's very convincing let's say um what do you think are some of the implications that this can have or um I don't know if you can also think of some implications outside of like academia, right? But in mm -hmm. so uh, so we have talked about this offline a little bit, right? And and we said it's hard to remember any technology in in 
NLP and language applications that went so mainstream, right? So the closest thing was probably when machine translation got actually good. Um, but this really, you know, touches way more than machine translation did and, and does. And so um, people oftentimes overuse this paradigm shift or groundbreaking, uh, you know, new invention uh, as, as a description. But in this case, I think it, it is really accurate. Um, I think in education, um, but also in different sciences and in the public sphere and in policymaking, there will be a before and after these models. Um, and, you know, again, let me stress, these models have been around in some way, shape or form for decades. Uh, people who were working in this area already knew about the potential for the last five years, but the fact that they're now available as web services to anybody without any coding knowledge has just blown it up. And I think as with any new technology, uh, there, there's a dual use case, right? So there is the intended use of these things to help you generate better text, to edit your writing, uh, to help translation, to help text classification, to help all the language applications we have. But then there's also the potential for abuse, right? So plagiarism is the obvious and, and big elephant in the room here. But there are also other uh, sort of corner cases and some issues that you know people are worrying about. I think what is clear is that this does affect anything that has to do with language uh, somehow. So for education, the big worry is, of course, well, the, the five paragraph essay is dead. And that is probably true. Now, the question we have to ask ourselves is, do we want to cling on to that and bemoan the fact that we can now no longer ask students to write a five paragraph essay? Or do we accept that and see what, what an opportunity this is? Right? Because I think it is a change, but as with any change, it brings positive and negative change, uh, aspects, right? And I think for education, rather than pretend that students, you know, shouldn't use it or just ban it outright, uh, we should just accept it as yet another tool, right? So uh, at some point, students carried calculators into math class. Uh, when I went to school, I was told, oh, you won't always have a calculator with you in the future. Well, that aged poorly right now. We all have a phone that is better than the calculators we had 20, 30 years ago. But now we accept that, you know, students use them in, in class and that's fine. That just opens up new possibilities. The, there is no point teaching them multiplication or addition as much, you know, if a, if a calculator can do that but it opens up the possibility to now do new things that require the use of these tools. And so with these language models, instead of asking students to write an essay, which they could outsource, quote unquote, to the, to the algorithm, we can ask them to go to ChatGPT, have the computer generate a, an essay for them, maybe two, maybe three essays on the same topic, and then have the students critique those outputs, right? And, and work with them, edit them, make a synthesis of them, you know, write 
what they expected would happen, what the computer didn't actually answer, just have them engage with it. And people said, well, but what if I read the essay and I think, oh, actually, you know, the computer should have mentioned Aristotle. And so I go back and I say, hey, can you write the same thing, but please include Aristotle this time? To which I say, well, that's fine, because that means they engaged with it, right? They they did read it, they did think about it, and then they went back and, and improved it, right? At the end of the day, what is, I think this is a good point for us to reflect on what do we want in education? What do we want students to take away? Do we want them to regurgitate certain facts on command? Fine, that's one way. Or we can, you know, hope that they engage with the subject matter, that they learn something, that they think about it, that they come up with their own ideas and solutions. And I think with these tools, we, we just, we're given another way of engaging our students in the best case, right? Uh, in the worst case, we can just see it as a way that enables cheating and as a competitor to what we're doing. But I think that would be short-sighted. Uh, another aspect is for a lot of non-native speakers of English, these tools are great to help the fluency of their writing, uh, to help them express ideas. Uh, so these tools can actually take a half-formed uh, idea and instruction and then transform it into a readable English fluent paragraph, right? And so that can help kickstart uh, people. I think it, it comes down to what do we expect of our students and how do we expect them to, to use this technology? Many, if not most, will use this as the same tool as, as a word processing or a, a grammar checker tool, right? That just helps them do the same thing they did before, just a bit faster, better, uh, maybe more efficiently. And some people, yes, might try and cheat with it, but I, I would not overly focus on that aspect. Yeah, I think you have a very nice, um... I don't know, I think I'm so used to reading about like new AI technologies, it's always panic and how everything is ruined and the world is about to end. <laughs> um, and you have a really, um, I guess, is it optimistic, the word, maybe a positive uh, view and kind of focusing more on what I think we usually agree are the, um, um, I guess the hallmarks of human intelligence is the ability to reason and all of that, which, I think it's, for example, one of the limitations of these uh, systems, right, that they're not always very good at, um, for example, following common sense or, yeah, maybe this, this idea of comparing and contrasting different things, but maybe a lot of the panic is coming from partly the ability of, to think, sorry, the idea that language is uniquely human, that is one of the defining things of humanity, and now all of a sudden, it feels like it, that uniqueness has been taken away, right? We have now yeah. AI. And I think mm -hmm. maybe it's also partly that it, because you can access GPT-3 or um, ChatGPT and a lot of these models online very easily, right? It even feels like it's not that big of a deal that we could do this. Like it, it's so like just there oh, and nice. accessible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, so I think previously maybe all these technologies were a little bit more, um, behind doors but um, what yeah. I wanted to get to was yeah it sounds like they can do a lot of amazing things so one of the things I wanted to ask was I guess what are some of the things they're not good at yeah uh, very good segue 
Um, <laughs> so I, I think it's very natural to look at these tools and be amazed. I mean, you know, you and I know how these things work internally, and still I look at the output and and I can't help but be amazed, right? I think it's very natural to look at this and go, my gosh, what what is this, right? Um, and and I think that's okay, especially as you said, right? Because it pertains to language, and that is such a uniquely human experience. Some animals do use languages, but not in the same way, not in the same social structure as as we do. And so to see a machine, a, a lifeless piece of metal, do this, we can't help but think, well, if it knows language, then what does that mean about other aspects of humanity, like consciousness, like feelings, like all of these things, right? But I think this is where our job as, as researchers and educators is to say, well, hold on a minute, just because it does one thing doesn't mean it can do all the other things, right? So just because you can do a decent scramble doesn't mean you can cook a five course menu, right? Like one might involve the first, but that doesn't mean, you know, the, the causality goes in that direction. So what we see is that these models produce language and they i'd like to say they mimic language very convincingly right so that they they react in a way that looks appropriate under most circumstances but if you scratch a little bit deeper then then that goes away right so one thing is that there, there is no consistency necessarily right so if you ask the model about who it is or where it's from today and tomorrow it might come up with different answers um, it might uh, not react in the same way and it certainly doesn't have an actual understanding about emotions or, or feelings or what it means to stub your toe right it can produce an answer that it has seen before in that form but it cannot really act upon it Right. So, so really what we're seeing here is the implementation of a very, very old philosophical question, which is sometimes called the Chinese room experiment. Um, you, you have a room, somebody sits inside and you, you stick in a message in English and then they have dictionaries and, and tools to translate this into Mandarin. And then they hand out their transcription on the other side and then somebody who knows Mandarin would read it and say, yes, I understand what's going on. The question is, does the person in that room actually speak Mandarin or not? And the question is also, does it matter, right? And, and right now with these models, it looks like they know language, but do they really? And the question is, does it matter? For some things, it probably does, right? For others, mm -hmm. it probably doesn't. But we know that these tools are, you know, convincingly presenting language output, which could read like emotions, but you could just as well make them produce the opposite. So there was the story about the, the um, person hired by Google to work on one of their language models and who became convinced that this model was sentient and had conscience. And I then- thinking you know, about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And, you know, it as proof, this person submitted some conversations they had with, with the model. But then a journalist did exactly the right thing and basically 
prompted the model slightly differently, right? So instead of saying, can you tell me, do you have conscience? Uh, the journalist wrote, hey, can you tell me why you don't have conscience? And the model would respond and explain in vivid detail why it is only a piece of metal and it does not have any conscience and it does not have any feelings, but it is designed to portray them, right? So these tools essentially you know, respond in a way to a stimulus. They respond to language and produce something that looks very much like language, but it's not actionable. Right? It doesn't have any of the other hallmarks that make us humans human. So there are papers now that ask whether they have a theory of mind, whether they can imagine that somebody else uh, has a personality and their own thoughts and feelings, whether they have feelings, whether they have conscience, whether they're sentient. But these questions, they are interesting questions, but they are ill-posed, right? Because all of these things require us to have a social interaction with somebody else. They require us to have biochemical reactions in our brains. Uh, and, and a machine has neither of these things, right? So the question whether the machine feels shame or embarrassment is just, it does not apply, right? It only applies to social beings and the machine is not a social being. Um, so, I think as understandable as it is that we want to humanize these models, we need to draw a line and say, yes, they, they look on the outside very much like one of the most human things we do, like, like speaking creatures, but they lack all the sort of internal bits and pieces that also go into being human. Yeah, I think I remember one of the the... This, this Google guy, I never remember his name. I think everybody just knows him as <laughs> the person who was hired Google by Google. <laughs> yeah, the Google guy who thought they were sentient. I think uh, one of his arguments was that because this thing says it's afraid to die, uh, that therefore it's probably sentient without really thinking that actually in most language you see that if somebody is asked, are you afraid to die? <laughs> They would say yes, right? So it's a much more likely if you think about it in terms of the just yeah, exactly yeah. the probabilities of sentences. So, um, but it also made me think, as well as the Chinese room, wasn't uh, I want to say it's Rene Descartes that thought dogs were not sentient, and they were like it was exactly the opposite that dogs would respond to a stimulus, like if you kick a dog, it will complain, but not because it really feels pain, and that we can never know this about other people. I, I think it's interesting and a little bit <laughs> off topic that it at you know what was the 1700s uh, we had the exact opposite thought and now because we see this thing that reacts like a human that it probably has feelings I don't know it uh, even though it has none of the internal bits and yeah none of the socialization that is yeah. needed to really understand this so so but you know I, I think these are these scratch sort of at the philosophical bits and sort of the larger metaphysical aspects of, of these models, yeah. which, you know, easily come to mind. Uh, but it, they actually also fail at much more mundane tasks. So you can take like uh, logical children's puzzles and give it to them. And sometimes they do well and sometimes they really don't do well on them. Uh, you can give them easy math related questions like how many letters are in the word 27? And even though it could simply go through and count them, essentially, it just 
produces a random number, which is in the right ballpark, but it's with math, it's either correct or it's not, right? If you say nine and the correct answer was 11, yeah, it's close, but but it's still wrong, mm -hmm. right? So it, it seems to have trouble with counting uh, or mm. with, with, with logic. Um, it seems to have trouble with reasoning uh, through like easy you know text examples so the whole thing that we all know and love from school right peter has three apples he gives two to anna and then he gets five from john and then bert takes three so like this whole apple-based economy that that people in these math <laughs> questions engage in how many do you have in the end right and we as humans can sort of go along and follow it even though it becomes difficult at some point, but the machine again comes up with an answer that is in the right ballpark, but it's not necessarily correct. There's also no recursion to, to reasoning about it, right? If you say, why did you give this answer? There isn't necessarily an understanding or, or an introspection. I saw a, a dialogue with ChatGPT where somebody said, oh, how many, how many letters are in this word? And the correct answer was, let's say 12. The machine said, it's 16. And I said, well, actually that's wrong. There's only eight. And then ChatGPT said, oh, I'm very sorry. I thought you meant the word as it is written, which doesn't make a difference in this case. But if you say it, then obviously it would be 16, but that's why I said eight because I thought the other one. And then the person responded, oh, I tricked you again. The correct answer is actually 12. And ChatGPT again says, yes, you're right. Uh, the, the, the correct answer is 12. <laughs> I just thought you meant this other thing. So it, it will always react. And it's sort of like a student that gets caught in a lie, right? They will come up with some explanation why they didn't have the homework. And okay, well, you know, the dog was sick, even though you saw them with the dog yesterday, but actually they had to borrow another dog. So it just <laughs> becomes this whole construct of, you know, makes, try to try to give an answer that makes sense in the context without any internal logic or consistency. Mm. No, I, I like a lot of the, the points that you raised going back previously more to the education um, from the positive side of chat GBC, because a lot of what I've been seeing in the papers and what people are discussing is what you're rightly saying, the negatives. And I think some schools have even in the US have already banned the use and just straight away. And it made, I was thinking for a while, like is the education sector on a bigger level ready for these kinds of new technologies for students? Um, and similarly to when we were at school, I remember, you know, writing an essay, lots of kids who would just write down your essay, revise it in your mind, so then you could go into the exam and just regurgitate an essay. So it's not actually that much different than giving yeah. it because you're not doing the logical reasoning and actually learning. So I like the approach you said to how we could implement that. But I guess I have two questions. One, um, how do you think the education sector could be more prepared for this? Um, and what kind of ideas do you have about um, ways they can incorporate this or be ready for these kind of new technologies with students, I guess, in the younger generation, if we're looking at the issue. And then two, um, more on, I guess, the you've said the sides that it's not good at, maybe more of the 
dangers in terms of maybe ethical implications that people are rightly concerned about or some people haven't even necessarily thought of yet because I think there's yeah. I'm seeing two sides where there's people who are like woo chat GBT I can add it on do this xyz and I've seen the real like negative oh my gosh um overhype on both sides basically but I'm wondering I'd like to hear yeah. from you what you foresee in any kind of danger from the work you do yeah yeah so uh, let me go to the first part uh, about education and sort of uh, tie a bow on that. Um, I think with technology, there's always the risk with uh, education, right? That the students, especially the younger students, will be way ahead of us in anything we do, right? When, when uh, Wikipedia came out and before that, there was the Microsoft Encyc Encyclopedia, right? Like all the students have yeah. that. In the teachers. <laughs> And, you know, the, all the students obviously immediately got that, right? Many teachers did not catch on to that. So for a while, there's this lag where, obviously, if somebody wants to abuse it, right, for their advantage, they can, right? Look, I'm not saying plagiarism and, and cheating isn't real. It happens all the time. Uh, I think how much do we want to make this into a boogeyman, right? Like, is this uh, is this widespread or is this the, the exception? I would like to think that, you know, for, for most cases, this is the exception, really. Um, how much do we trust our students that they want to learn? At the end of the day, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. You can, you know, expose students to knowledge, but you can't make them want to learn it right or we can try that's the best we can do but at the end of the day everybody has to engage with the material and, and decide whether they want to learn it themselves i think you know from a positive perspective this gives us another tool to engage students uh, to help i've i've talked to um, a, an educator in sweden who said this is actually a tool to level the playing field, uh, especially among teenagers. Uh, they see that uh, girls can express themselves much better than boys on average. Um, and so having a tool like this that could help you, you know, write better might actually level the playing field and in some of these things, open up opportunities for people. Another aspect is, uh, you know, immigration, many of us who live in, in countries other than their birth country, who are not native speakers, will struggle with expressions, uh, with, with writing things to, you know, the, the municipality or like some official declaration or, or just, you know, in class. So having a tool here in education, I think could be a huge boon. Uh, and so I think it's too easy to just say, oh, let's just ban it, right? We, we don't ban things because they could be abused for something, we ban the abuse of them, right? And again, it would be very naive to think that nobody would ever abuse these things if we ask nicely, uh, not if there's things at stake like grades and, and graduations. But I think overall, we should trust our students that they want to learn and that they want to do the right thing. And it's up to us as educators to find the best way to encourage them and to meet them where they are. And one thing you said, what can we do? 
I think we as educators, as teachers, we need to learn about this technology, understand what it can and cannot do, and then see how we can use that as, as a tool for us, right? When I went to school, and I'm going to reveal my, my age a little bit here, uh, people still used overhead slides, like actually, you know, transparent slides, and then drew on them and put them on an overhead projector. Um, and then eventually, you know, things moved uh, forward and, and, you know, many teachers and professors moved towards using PowerPoint slides or things like that. So that's another way how technology has affected and changed teaching. In this case, I think it, it's, it's a bit more fundamental. It's a bit more far reaching, but I think if, if we think about it creatively, if we conceive of it as a tool, um, it, it opens up so many possibilities for us for the better and to to better serve students and, and meet their needs but also to uh, make you know do the thing we actually want to do like make them engage with the subject and hopefully learn something about it uh, now coming to your second question about the ethical concerns uh, this is i mean this is a, a subject that's kind of made for social media right it's so there are so salient points of concern and it's so easy to take a position and then just die on that hill that, you know, it's, it's just made for short bursts and hot takes. You know, I, I'm here as the boring researcher who says, well, actually things are a bit more nuanced and complicated. But as always, things are a bit more nuanced and complicated, right? Yes, there are absolute concerns and issues, ethical concerns with these tools. This starts with um, plagiarizing the work of people who you know, do this for a living. So these tools have been trained on the entire internet. That might include content of people who have been paid to write things for a living, like journalists, for example, or, or lawyers. Um, and now, they, these, these models might regurgitate some of this content. Um, so essentially they're plagiarizing people and infringing upon their livelihood. But another question is also representation, right? Who, who are the people who write things on the internet, right? If you think about on average, who is that person, right? They're unlikely to be in their 80s right? Um, they, they are unlikely to be evenly spread across the globe, right? There are, there are regions in the world that have a much higher presence on the internet than their actual population would, you know, would warrant if, if it was representative. So the internet is a very skewed place. Um, it is by and large skewed towards people like me, sort of middle-aged white college educated men speaking American-ish English. And um, so it, it will reflect a lot of the language, but inherently also many of the positions, beliefs and stereotypes that, that the groups that are dominant in the data that this, these models have been trained on prevail. So what does that mean, right? Well, language, we use language to convey a lot of ideas, but we also convey our ideology, our beliefs, our stereotypes in language. 
So to some extent, the way these models have been set up, they have acquired a knowledge of the structure of language, but they've also acquired certain positions, uh, certain um, phrases, certain ways of expressing an idea that we as humans will associate with an ideology, with a stereotype, with a, with a certain viewpoint, right? Now, again, to be clear, these models themselves do not have an ideology. They do not have a viewpoint. Again, in order to have that, you would have to have something at stake. You would have to have skin in the game to some extent uh, so that you, know, you, you cling to certain beliefs because you like them, because they benefit you, whatever. To a machine, it's literally just words. But that doesn't mean that when we use these models, they won't proliferate existing stereotypes. They won't feed into existing tropes and ideologies and you know, accelerate them or sort of create an echo chamber. Um, so there, there are definitely issues around that. Uh, a lot of the research uh, I do is around the differences in language between different groups. So people of different ages, different regions, different gender identities express themselves differently. That is how we represent ourselves. That is how we create identity. Uh, and we, uh, we look a lot at how much of that is reflected in the tools that we use. And so with these new tools, this question persists, but it's sort of, it, it, it gets raised to another level it gets you know turned to 11. so uh, a lot of the issues we have seen before when you use a translation engine the output sounds a lot more like your father they sound more older and male than the original speaker probably was um, if you know using this tool makes everybody sound for example like a 50 year old man that might not matter in some contexts, it might matter in others, right? Because if that comes with the average ideologies, viewpoints, stereotypes that let's say 50 year old men hold, and we use these tools to generate text, then you know we're sort of creating this feedback loop and we're creating this proliferation of a certain position. So many of these things might seem a little bit arcane and might seem like they're very specialized, but they are just by the sheer scale and ubiquity of it uh, now with these models becoming real issues that, that we need to address, right? Because there are certain applications where it does matter who is represented by the model and whose viewpoints these models uh, represent, regurgitate, depict, or whatever you want to choose. Yeah, I was thinking about this also like beyond in terms of the ideologies it represent, but actually in terms of the variety of language, right? That, um, yeah, exactly. Different people speak differently. And um, this idea that, uh, I don't know if uh, girls on average are, or women on average are better at expressing themselves or who's better at writing and the idea even of what good writing is, whether that might be narrowed down. Like I think right now we kind of value different styles and different authors. And you can say that um, George Orwell writes well and Maya Angelou writes well and they write very differently. 
Um, and whether like language models might yeah really narrow the definition of um, or the idea of good writing, um, how much creativity they actually have, quote unquote. Um, and my mind is also kind of tying that into the world of like AI generated art. And I think uh, Oriana and I did an episode in the past where we also talked about it in the lab, like what value is there in AI generated art? Um, and I think that goes for, I mean, all kinds of um, writing, but I was also thinking like in terms of, of poetry and um, all of those. I don't know if you have um, any thoughts. I don't think I've asked a proper question, but I guess what value is there in language variety? Is there a danger that uh, we're going to lose um, yeah, languages? Yes. So so let me start on a, on a optimistic, positive note. Uh, languages are very robust. Um, so autocratic regimes always, always, always try to govern how people have to speak, right? So there are all of these examples uh, in, in dystopian novels, you know, what you like double speak and like what you're allowed to say and what you're not allowed to say and what you can say uh, and all these jokes about, you know, the, 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 the Department of Good News uh, being basically the propaganda ministry. Um, language is power, right? How we say things does affect how we live, but people always find a way to express what they want to do, right? And languages, you cannot eradicate a word just by decree. Uh, that does not mean languages don't change. That doesn't mean languages die, don't die. There are a lot of languages that have died over the course of the millennia um, because either all the speakers died out or because they switched to another language that was better for trade, better for politics, that was more prestigious, cooler, right? Um, so languages do constantly change, right? And that is, I think that that, that makes them strong, right? That makes them resilient to some extent. Um, what we will see probably here is that this will interplay with with changing languages, right? It, it might sort of keep some things around that otherwise we would have forgotten about and it will maybe uh, accelerate the demise of other things. But if you think about some expressions you used when you were 16, oh, you'll nice. probably hopefully cringe now and be like, oh, actually I wouldn't say that anymore. Mm -hmm. That, you know, that is a, a sign of how much language changes over time, right? This is some something that these models struggle with because they're trained on a certain snapshot of the internet. Um, and so they don't know about certain things. So there's often the example, oh, they don't know about COVID. They don't know it became a pandemic. They don't know who the current president of the US is. Some of these things can be added afterwards, but uh, they always have a temporal limitation. Now, what we see in terms of variety uh, that always changes, right? So it, certain varieties of a language become cool, become important, others die away or, or diminish. Um, and I think this will interact. Because it's such a complex issue though, I don't know in which direction it will go, right? Maybe this will encourage people to write in their dialect. Uh, maybe this will encourage people to use their local expressions and that will be amplified. It could go either way, I think. Um, so we see that with um, languages that don't have a fixed writing, uh, like Luxembourgish or many uh, forms of Swiss German varieties, 
that they create a very lively uh, online presence and, and you know, they are thriving and, and alive and well and, and growing. Mm. How this feeds into like creativity and representation and how we value language is a different question. So with all of these uh, questions about the role of humans, the roles of educators, one thing that it always needs is the creative spark of the human, right? So uh, the Guardian ran an article uh, saying a computer or an algorithm wrote this article, are you scared yet human, right? And it was uh, authored by GPT-3. And then if you read the whole article and the footnote, it says, well, actually, what we did is we asked GPT-3 10 times to write an article, and then we edited it together to make this article, which really undermines the whole point, right? GPT-3 by itself would not have simply just produced this article without anybody prompting it. And then it needed the you know, experienced eye of an, a, an editor, a journal, like a newspaper editor, to take the bits and pieces and put it together and make it sing. Right? So I think simply producing language for the sake of producing something is, is one aspect, but that does not make a poem, right? Uh, as anybody knows who's tried to write a poem that's any good, it's very, very hard, right? It, and because it draws upon so many things that make us human, right? Like emotions, feelings, and, you know, psychological states. Um, and a, a machine can, to some extent, fake this or, or replicate or emulate it, but it's not quite the same thing. Poems are, a friend of mine uh, has called them the, the most inefficient way of communicating ever. And that's true, right? But we don't use poems to communicate things efficiently. We use poems because we like their sound. We, we like how, how it expresses a well-known concept in a new and exciting way, right? So we don't always do things in language to be most efficient. We often do things because we like them. And so I think the role of artists, as with educators, as with researchers, will change. Here is this new tool uh, that they can choose to use and include in their art. But also it is, to some extent, a competitor for certain types of art, right? Maybe for a quick illustration, yeah, you might go to something like stable diffusion or dally would you print it out and hang it in your living room no you would probably still find a nice painting that that you enjoy that that makes you feel happy excited calm whatever that has been painted by a human so there is this uncanny valley there is still this this difference between something that kind of looks the part and fulfills most of the purposes most of the criteria that we have for an art um, but it's at the end of the day not the real thing and it doesn't mean that the real thing will go away because it's it will get specialized it will serve a different purpose in our lives um, but i don't think it will completely eradicate a lot of things so while i believe that with these models there's a before and after and they do touch a lot of what we do and they will change a lot of jobs. They will change a lot of everyday lives. It's hard to say that it will be purely positive or purely negative. It will be a little bit of both. And I think on balance, 
if we look 50 years down the line, we'll look back at it as, well, one other change, like the introduction of electricity or the printing press or the wheel or fire, right? At the time, those were momentous things, but humanity moved on and, you know, today we take them for granted. And I think our kids probably will do the same. Yeah, I think that's a really nice um, kind of note to close out on and also um, reflect on, because I think humans have an amazing way of being adaptable to things. And um, I do think the points you've raised, it'll be interesting to see kind of in 50 years time, <laughs> what what people will be talking about, about chat GPT compared to what they're saying now and kind of how our views would have changed and adapted, um, just like we tend to do throughout history. So yeah, no, that's an exciting way to end on an optimistic note. And thank you so much for coming on. It's been a great yeah, thank chat. You. Thanks for having Super me. Super interesting. Thank you for the nuanced view. And um, I hope we hope all our listeners um, can kind of balance out the <laughs> all the, the madness we're reading online about our Lord and Savior, Chad GPT. <laughs> yeah, the overhype. I feel like yeah, there's been so much overhype in both directions. It's hard to have a nuanced conversation these days on there. Maybe, so, maybe we've done our little bit to add to that middle ground. Yeah. Thank you for tuning in, guys. That was such an exciting episode. I feel like I came away feeling really enlightened by a lot of what Dirk was saying, and I hope that you guys did as well. That was a positive spin to what we're hearing about, um, or the hype we're hearing about chat GPT, actually. Yeah, and hopefully, I think everybody learned some things, and hopefully I took a more balanced or nuanced um, idea of but it's actually a really exciting development in, in NLP and it's maybe not all doom and gloom and it's also probably not all sunshine and sparkles, I guess. But. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the two extremes I think we all see on, on the news right now is, it's, oh my gosh, it's the best thing in the whole entire world or oh my God, yeah. we're all going to die. <laughs> exactly, yeah, we're all going to die. There are no more jobs. Humanity's yeah. doomed. That was, um, that was a nice balance calm I think um or insightful uh, explanation of I think both sides and um I feel like that's something that we could have talked about for hours I think we're gonna have to do a follow-up episode at some point because so there's too. too much to discuss on that on on what's happening and I'm sure there's gonna be loads more developments as the months continue yeah yeah because ChatGPT touches on so many things like mm-hmm. AI art the IP the <laughs> just keeps going and going so um on that note i think so we will see each other hear each other (laughs) um not next week but the week after Mm -hmm. we're looking at doing i think bi-weekly content for the meantime and just see um see how things progress from there but we've got some more exciting guests coming up so stay tuned yeah stay tuned and thank you very much for listening Bye. bye